I'm Peter Block at the virtual ACC 20 and World Congress of Cardiology. Uh, this is Sunday. It is day two of the meeting. And with me is Deepak Bhatt. And he and I are doing the wrap up for the late breaking clinical trials of the day. Deepak, welcome. Thank you. So we're going to start off with an interesting trial that uh, we'd like to talk about. It has some things that are positive, some things that need to be learned. The spiral hypertension off medicine pivotal trial. These are patients who are not on antihypertensives who then go ahead and have a renal denervation done transcatheter-wise. So uh, Deepak, I'll throw it to you. Uh, the outcomes of this trial are very interesting, aren't they? Yeah, the trial was positive. It met its primary endpoint. There was a significant reduction in the ambulatory blood pressure and in the office blood pressure as well, uh, modest in magnitude in these patients not on any meds, uh, though with the caveat that there were more add-ons of medications in the sham arm, as one would hope, and as you know, the investigators were ethically obliged to do. Uh, so that might lead to a little bit of underestimate, in fact, of, of what the true benefit would have been if you absolutely didn't add any medicines into the sham arm. So overall, I think it's a good validation of renal denervation being a safe procedure, uh, at least with the duration of follow-up here, and uh, one that's effective at lowering blood pressure. Well, the, to me, though, a couple of things I think that we need to point out. Number one, uh, I, I'm always uh, underwhelmed by hypertensive trials. We see changes in blood pressure that are an average of three or four millimeters uh, systolic and maybe two or three diastolic. And the antihypertensive guys jump up and down and say, that's awesome. And we look at it and say, really? But the fact of the matter is, you know, uh, statistically, it makes a difference. And the outcomes may, in fact, be diminished simply by a small or what we look at as relatively small incremental changes or decremental changes in blood pressure. That's all good. Uh, I think the other interesting thing about it is how many patients do we see who are hypertensive, who are not on any medicines that need to have a transcatheter intervention? Uh, that's sort of an interesting quandary, isn't it? Yeah, these are all great points you raised. So, I mean, it's largely, I think, a very important validation and proof of concept study after Simplicity Hypertension 3 which uh, George Backris and I led, you know, that trial didn't meet its primary endpoint. Numerically, there were some signals maybe in certain subgroups that uh, renal denervation was doing something, but it wasn't a nice, clean uh, result showing a significant benefit. Here, in patients not on meds with the potential contamination of variable adherence to medications that occurs in trials and occurs even more so in real life, we see that renal denervation really does work. So it does answer the fundamental question, which should have probably been the first question asked, does this actually work in a sham controlled trial? And I think the investigators have nailed that. Now, the real question is, you know, would it be a durable effect? Would it be an effect that is worthwhile clinically in patients that are on meds? And to help answer some of those questions, there is another trial going on spiral hypertension on meds. So for patients that are actually being treated with meds, if there's a clinically significant reduction in blood pressure, then I think you know this might be a therapy uh, that uh, could enter clinical practice. But I think we need more data uh, at a minimum spiral hypertension on meds, but probably even more than that to, to really nail down what the effect is on blood pressure. I'm sure a lot of clinicians would like to see an effect on clinical endpoints, but that would be a large expensive trial. 
I would agree totally. We've been uh, bouncing this technology around for a long time, and now we finally have something that says, hey, this really works. Uh, but how it will be interpreted clinically, I think we just will need more data for. So let's move on. Well, but you know, one last thing I'll say, it is a good validation. This is an important lesson, especially for the uh, interventionalists and uh, electrophysiologists and, and, and maybe cardiac surgeons that are listening. You know, the sham controls really do matter because if you remember the initial reports of renal artery denervation with older generation catheters that were presumably less effective was, you know, 20, 30 millimeters of uh, mercury drop in blood pressure, and that certainly hasn't been validated in sham control trials. So I think you know the sham control is valuable. It's tough to do. It's expensive to do, but it helps us find the truth. Whereas you know uncontrolled or or uh, open label type trials can lead really down a, an incorrect path with information that ultimately ends up being spurious. So you know it's a validation as well as that that I think fundamental concept in trials. In drugs, we almost always use a uh, double-blind placebo, but we really should hold devices to the same standard. Totally agree. So let's move on to the next. Pronomos. I mentioned yesterday that Pronomos was yet another trial that covers rivaroxaban, rivaroxaban being a big hitter uh, at this meeting in general. Uh, this is lower extremity surgery, which occurs mostly in young people. Think tibial fractures, ankle fractures, uh, mostly stuff that kids that happens to kids when they're on the athletic field and so forth. And it is a question of whether or not rivaroxaban is a useful medication for these folks uh, if they have their surgery. It's a one-month follow-up. It's interesting that the endpoints are deep venous thrombosis and venous thromboembolism as an endpoint at one-month follow-up. There are a small number of outcomes. There are 1,600 patients in this trial. Uh, the outcomes are in single digits for almost all of the outcomes. But nonetheless, uh, it turns out that for the first two, it's positive, VTE and DVT. And then when you add bleeding to that, uh, rivaroxaban comes out ahead of anoxaparin. And therefore, what the investigators put together as net clinical benefit turns out to be very positive uh, with a risk ratio of 0.48. So uh, this is an interesting trial. Uh, the folks who presented it uh, are anesthesiologists, interestingly, in our interview. They were quite enthusiastic about this for young people who could avoid having a needle stuck in them every day for their anticoagulant after surgery. And for young people who are immobilized uh, for one reason or another for a period of weeks, it sounds as though uh, rivaroxaban is a winner on this one and easy to take, uh, not that expensive, and something that uh, everyone should look at if they're taking care of these folks. Uh, Deepak, any thoughts? Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I think it's a win. Yeah, the number of events was low, but on the other hand, if you have a youngish person, they've had orthopedic surgery, the last thing you want them to have when they're convalescing at home is a DVT or a PE. So I think a few weeks here of rivaroxaban makes sense to me. I think you know it's better than getting stuck with an injection. Not that anoxaparin is so bad in this context, but uh, to me, you know, no excess, no significant excess, and really bad bleeding, uh, fewer DVT type events. Uh, why not do it for a few weeks? I, I think you know there might be some incremental cost. I'm not sure about that aspect, but nevertheless, we're just talking about a few weeks. I think for a young person, it's worth it. There you go. Okay, let's move on to. Uh another trial that we should discuss, and that's the Augustus trial. Now, we've 
talked about, you and I have talked about in patients with atrial fibrillation who need a PCI, should they have dual or should they have triple therapy? And it turns out uh, the Augustus trial answers a little bit of both of those. Do you want to pick that one up, Deacock? Absolutely. So the overall Augustus trial is presented previously as a late breaker and is published in the England Journal of Medicine, incredible practice changing trial, factorial design showed that in general in patients with AFib and or PCI or ACS, uh, indications for both antiplatelet and anticoagulant therapy, you don't wanna stack therapies too much. And, and in general, the, the winning strategy was apixaban as opposed to warfarin uh, and uh, placebo as opposed to aspirin. And uh, this is all in a background largely of P2Y12 inhibitors, in particular clopidogrel. So the bottom line message, it seemed like at that time, in most patients, you would discharge them on apixaban uh, and discharge them on clopidogrel. And it turns out then what they have discovered in this additional analysis is that continuing the aspirin for a little bit beyond discharge, but definitely not more than a month, uh, seemed to provide in really high ischemic risk patients some incremental benefits. So I guess the bottom line is that there might still be a role for a brief duration of triple therapy, in this case, largely apixaban, clopidogrel, and aspirin in patients that are really high ischemic risk, but low bleeding risk when they fall into this camp of AFib plus ACS or PCI. Exactly. And one of the things that I keep uh, remembering when I look at Augustus and the outcomes in this uh, study as well is that clopidogrel is still the mainstay here, right? You need a good antiplatelet. Uh, and then in addition, apixaban usually, but for the very high risk patient, I, the triple therapy seems to be the right thing to do. Uh, bleeding it, for me is always an issue. Bleeding is not good for you. And uh, I think we have to be careful, but this trial tells us that it might be useful in a small subset. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree with that. I, again, I think here, uh, like all things in, in life and medicine, you know, careful physician discretion and patient selection is needed. I definitely want continued triple therapy beyond a month. Almost, I, I really can't think of any circumstance where that's a good idea. I think at that point, the bleeding overwhelms any sort of stent thrombosis or, or uh, ischemic efficacy. But in select patients, it might be a good idea to do triple therapy for a, a very a brief duration. Uh, in the order of uh, just a couple of weeks. But, um, you know, this is an area I should point out, there are also other studies going on. There's a large European trial uh, looking at this concept of triple therapy. Uh, and I'll also point out another important aspect of this trial. Really, this is a knockout of, of warfarin. Uh, it, it was a Pixaban specifically studied here, but I think it's another validation of NOACs. And especially now that a Pixaban's gone generic, uh, it does make it quite appealing. I would agree with all those things. So let's move on to the last trial, Caravaggio, named after a painter, one of my favorites, actually. So uh, the Caravaggio trial is a Pixaban 10 twice a day uh, or low molecular weight heparin for six months uh, for DVT and pulmonary embolism in patients with neoplasms, cancers. Uh, and fascinating study in an important subgroup of patients who are high-risk patients. Deepak, do you want to talk about the details here? Yeah, absolutely. This is a terrific trial, important trial, widely anticipated in the vascular medicine community. So it took patients with confirmed DVT, PE, also either active cancer or a history of cancer, and it's the real thing, not just you know minor skin cancers, uh, not brain cancer, not METs to the brain, so you know, some uh, common sense exclusion criteria as well. 
and it found, well, it randomized patients to apixaban 10 BID, so twice a day oral apixaban, or to a uh, low molecular weight heparin injection, daltaparin, uh, or daltaparin, I think is the right way to pronounce it, was uh, what was used. And um, overall, a significantly uh, non-inferior finding. So uh, apixaban at this dose was non-inferior to the daltaparin which I think is really a uh, win in this context. The, the p-value for superiority uh, was a bit marginal at 0.08, so it didn't quite hit for superior. Uh, and you know, in, in this context of numerically uh, less thrombotic events, uh, numerically also a little bit more bleeding, but not significantly so, I, I still think it's a win because most of these patients, I believe, would rather take a pill twice a day versus an injection once a day. The short version is this like Pronomos, uh, right? Would you rather take a pill or would you rather get stuck once a day? And uh, I think most of us would say, gee, this is a no brainer. Uh, let's go ahead and take the pill, even if I have to take it twice a day. And in this high risk group of patients anyway, who are prone to uh, venous thromboembolism, uh, it, there seems no reason not to switch over. I think this is going to be a landmark trial for that subset of patients. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, it's published in the New England Journal of Medicine simultaneously, which is always um, a nice thing too. And I do agree with you. It'll be practice changing. There are a lot of these patients with cancer and venous thromboembolism or history of cancer and venous thromboembolism. So it is to me something that's practically very useful. Maybe it's because I'm here, uh, you know, right next to Dana-Farber, we see a lot of these patients. And I think if we could get them on a NOAC, that really simplifies life versus giving them an injection. There you go. So there's the wrap up for Sunday. Thanks, Deepak. Yeah, great speaking with you.